Here we are, Acts chapter 4. We're coming to the end of Acts chapter 4 and into the beginning of Acts chapter 5. The theme of this passage of scripture that these two young ladies read for us uh, so beautifully this morning is two words. I just got two words for you uh, today. It's supernatural. I just want you to, to look at the person next to you and say, it's supernatural. You see, one of the problems with church is that we think things are natural when they're supernatural. We think we're just dealing with people when we're actually dealing with God. We think we're looking at human processes when actually divine guidance is involved in that human process. And, and there's really four different components of this passage of scripture that we looked at this morning. But in each of the components, there was something supernatural going on that may have looked natural at first. But when you look beneath the surface, what you find is that something is supernatural going on. And the mistake we make is to interact with the body of Christ as if we're only interacting with people. And if we interact with the body of Christ as if we're only interacting with people, we're prone to make mistakes that can be very costly. And we're also prone to miss what God wishes to give us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing we discover here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following is that there was this, this type of, of I, I want to use the word communism because it's the best way of describing it, but it was not the kind of communism that we find in the world today. It was, it was a voluntary communism. What, what the scripture says is that the multitude of believers were of one mind, were of one heart first, one heart and of one mind. The multitude of believers were of one heart and one soul, it says here. The word in the, in the Greek, psukes, means soul. But it's speaking of their mind in this particular uh, circumstance. When it says they are of one heart, the heart in, in the New Testament especially is not merely the seat of the emotions as it is in poetry and in songs and so forth. But the heart is the seat of the affections. And the affections are different from the emotions. When we're talking about the affections, we're talking about the posture of the heart towards God. It means that they were of one passion. It means that they had the same fervent desire to serve the Lord, to know the Lord, to seek the Lord. It means that they were propelled by the same internal motivation. It meant that when you sat and talked to one believer, you would hear them talk about their deep, passionate love for the Lord, desire to know the Lord, their, their pursuit of God, their search for God. And if you went and talked to another random believer, you would hear that same passionate desire coming from that believer. They were of one heart. It meant that there, there weren't at this time in the early church there were no heck of fake Christians. There were no nominal Christians, Christians in name only. There were no Sunday Christians who lived like the devil Monday through Saturday, but then said hallelujah in the house of God on Sunday. There was no hypocrisy in the church. It wasn't just unity, but it was a lack of hypocrisy. And in fact, if we can remove hypocrisy from the church, we actually would experience what real unity is supposed to be. They were unified around a passionate, intense longing to know the Lord, to serve the Lord with their whole life, to obey the Lord with everything. You know, I was meditating this week. I, was, I, I, went, to the, I went to Kaiser and Pleasant to pick, some, pick up some medicine. And after I got my medicine, I got in the car and I was trying to leave. But all of a sudden, I sat down in the car and I felt the Holy Spirit just drawing me. And I said, okay, I'm just going to pray for a few minutes before I leave. And I turned on my worship music and I ended up sitting there for an hour and a half just worshiping the Lord and seeking his face. But what kept coming to my heart was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm sorry, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this prayer started to come out of me. Lord, purify my heart fully and totally because I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you with my eyes. I want to see you in my situations. And then that verse in the middle of Hebrews 12 came and it said, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I said, Lord, I pursue holiness because I want to see the Lord. All of a sudden, this deep, passionate desire started to emerge from within me. And that deep, passionate desire was what propelled me to pray. And the Holy Spirit arrested my heart and I couldn't leave until the Holy Spirit was done 
with whatever that work was that was going on in my heart at the time. The multitude of believers was of one heart. They had the same passion. It was the culture of the early church. That passionate desire to know the Lord, to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord with their entire life. And then secondly, they had one mind. They were of the same mind, which meant that their minds were locked on to the truth. And one of the great problems in our culture and in our time and in our society is that there is a confusion of truth and honesty. The truth is not the same thing as honesty. Knowing the truth is not the same thing as telling the truth. Because when you're telling the truth, you're simply honest about what you feel and what you believe to be true. But that could be a lie. You can be honest about a lie. You can honestly believe a lie. But when your mind is locked onto the truth, you're not simply being honest. Matter of fact, sometimes the truth contradicts what you feel. And declaring the truth to be true in the face of emotions that are contrary to the truth is a higher virtue than declaring your emotions to be true and being true to yourself. When it says the believers were of one mind, it doesn't mean everybody agreed to be true to themselves. Isn't that the watchword of our culture? Just be true to you. Just do you, boo. You just got to do you. No. Be true to the word of God. Be true to the call of God on your life. Be true to the truth of Scripture. Be true to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, I beseech you that you, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the truth. And that's the authenticity that God is looking for, is being the authentic you that you are in the presence of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because the you that you become under the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the real you. But the you that you become in the absence of the Spirit is a false you. And being true to that false version of yourself is not the truth. It's simply being honest about your participation in a lie. Amen. And I know that's true. You ain't got to say amen. Uh! They were of one mind and one soul Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. They had, nobody said, that's my car out there. Everybody said, that's our car. We got a car. Somebody needs a car. Somebody needs a ride. We got plenty of cars out there. We got cars. If anybody, nobody, nobody's without a ride because we got cars. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, there was a group of us friends that we hung out together all the time. And, uh, and I borrowed a car from somebody and I pulled up and uh, one of my friends, this young lady, she ran out and started screaming, we got a new car. We got a new car. I was like, what do you mean we? <laughs> you didn't get nothing. And then I was like, actually, I didn't get nothing either. This ain't even my car. <laughs> but there was, this, there was this voluntary communism. If we need something, we got it. It's in the house. And watch how it played out. I, I, I don't want to scare you. We're not trying to implement this as a ministry, right? Like, I'm not going to say tomorrow, like, everybody just put all your money in this one common bank account that we all got. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're going to, no, that's not, no, no. It was voluntary. Watch this. They had all things common. Skipping over to verse 34, it says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as they had need. So literally, people were going, you know what? I already got a house. I don't need that vacation home. And they would go sell the vacation home. And then they would come to church and spontaneously... Nobody was teaching this. Nobody was telling anybody to do this. This was simply the way. Remember, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It looked natural, but actually this was a move of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing something unique in the church and moving on people to sell their lands. And they were coming to church with wheelbarrows of money. And the apostles would be teaching and somebody would come and dump a wheelbarrow money at the feet of the apostles. And the apostles like, what am I supposed to do with this? 
Because you've got to understand, they already had a building. It's called the temple. That's where everybody met. So they didn't need a building. They didn't need to pay for <laughs> lights and electricity. They basically had no expenses. So what did the apostles do? They were like, well, we got some folks in the church who don't have food to eat. So they're like, if you, if you ain't got food to eat, come up to the front. And they're like, here you go. Here's some money. Here's some money. Here's some money. And they just distributed to everybody. Oh, and sister so-and-so, I heard your car broke down. Come here. Here, get your car fixed. And so-and-so, I heard you about to get evicted from your apartment. Here, here's, here's two months rent. You know, and here's the back rent that you need. Oh, uh, somebody, you need money for school? Here you go. Go, go pay your tuition. And, and, get. and they distributed to everybody. Now, I, wouldn't you want to join that church? <laughs> That's pretty crazy. I mean, word gets out quick. They're like, man, nobody has needs in that place. They just take care of one another. Like, they don't let anybody have needs in that church. And then it says here that with great power, the apostles bore witness in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When it talks about the apostles giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with power, it's talking about miracles and signs and wonders. So get this, the Holy Spirit falls on this gathering. There's such supernatural unity that they can't allow there to be needs in the house. Such supernatural unity that you can't meet another believer who's hungry and not feed them. Such... And this is, this, is, this is something just to put in your mind and heart. In today, in our day and age, the church feeds the homeless outside of the church, but not inside of the church. In the book of Acts, they fed the homeless inside of the church, but not outside of the church. They did not do the kind of outreach we do. They did not set up soup kitchens in Jerusalem. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not what they did. Their attitude was, we're going to take care of our people. And this was what made it so attractive. This is part of the reason why a lot of people say, i got to get in on that. They're like, but to get in, you've got to actually know Jesus. This is not a club. And the apostles are giving witness to the resurrection and glory of Jesus with great power. And then this guy, it says Joseph's here in the New King James. It's actually Joseph. Uh, pray for Nicole. She couldn't figure that one out. She was like, Jose? <laughs> no, he was not Mexican. <laughs> it's <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> Joseph! <laughs> he was Filipino. <laughs> and the apostle, his name was Joseph. The apostles named him Barnabas. Barnabas is a compound Hebrew word. Bar means son. Nabas means encouragement. Bar Nabas means son of encouragement. The apostles named him son of encouragement. Why? Because he was the most encouraging member of the early church. He was so full of encouragement that they named him encouragement. You could not be discouraged around this dude, Barnabas. If you were in the presence of Barnabas, you just walked away and, man, I, man, I feel so encouraged. Why? I don't know, but I feel great. Were you hanging out with Barnabas again? Yes, I was. And the apostles named him Barnabas because he was so encouraging. So this dude, Barnabas, he's the only one that they name. Apparently, a lot of people were selling their properties and laying the money at the, the apostles' feet. But it says, this guy, Barnabas... He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, there's, a, there's one contradiction. He's a Levite having land. You ever read the Old Testament? The Levites weren't supposed to own land. He's a Levite having land. That's a side point. But it could be the Holy Spirit prompted his heart and said, you better come into agreement with the word of God, Levite. If you want me to be your portion, you better get rid of this. And he was like, yes, Lord. He went and sold the land, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this was happening publicly in the early church. People were not secretly Venmoing their offering. They were bringing cash, cash money. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. 
and laying it at the apostles' feet. And I don't think they even had an offering time. It's just the apostles are teaching and people are throwing bricks of cash down at their feet. <laughs> and dumping wheelbarrows full of money at the feet of the apostles. You see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. What if people started doing this here? What if while I was preaching, all of a sudden Nicole just got up and threw a brick of cash down at my feet? And I said, where'd you get that brick of cash? And she's like, I sold my parents' house. (laughs) I don't know where they're going to live, but I got to obey God. (laughs) What would you say if somebody just threw a brick of cash down at my feet while I was, if Ying threw a brick of cash down at my feet? What would you say? You say, that was prideful. That was exhibitionist. The interesting thing was everybody was doing it publicly, but nobody was doing it pridefully. Everyone was doing it publicly, but nobody was doing it pridefully. And because everyone was doing it publicly, but nobody was doing it pridefully, honor was able to flow because honor is always able to flow in the absence of pride. You heard about the man that received a badge of humility for his work in the community, but they took it back because he wore it everywhere? (laughs) It's a joke. It didn't actually happen. (laughs) The thing about humility, humility is so fleeting because the moment you realize you got it, you lost it. Really, the essence of humility is to give no thought to yourself. Humility is not to think lowly of yourself. That's inferiority. Sometimes we think we're being humble just because we just think, oh, I'm terrible. I'm, you know, like the awareness of everything that's wrong with me is humility. No, that's inferiority. That's demonic. That's what the devil wants to do is to confront you with everything that's wrong with you. Humility is to give no thought to yourself. Barnabas came, dumped a wheelbarrow of cash at the apostles' feet, and walked away without thinking anything. He wasn't thinking of himself. He just walked away and said, I'm in obedience to God. God, you told me to do it, and I did it. He wasn't walking away thinking, now they're going to let me have a say in the way they run this church. Now I get to be a big person here. He didn't walk away with any thought to himself. He didn't walk away thinking that he was entitled to anything now that he had given something. He simply walked away feeling, I obeyed God. I did what God, I love when I I see the people of God doing that. When the people of God simply step out and obey God without a word, without blowing trumpets. Over the years I've seen so so many people have come to me and, and tried to give me their offering without an envelope, an open check, because they wanted me to see the amount they were giving to the church. And I said, no, 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 mm mm, mm mm. That don't mean nothing to me. You need to take that and put it in the offering plate like everybody else. Because the offering is not an opportunity to gain standing in the house of God. It's simply about obedience to God. Can I simply be obedient to God and do what God tells me to do without needing to blow trumpets and tell the world, guess what I have done for God? (laughs) Dun-da-da-dum! But honor came on Barnabas after he obeyed God. And the crazy thing is, most of the honor that came on Barnabas was not because of the money he gave, but because he was so encouraging. He became a big man in the church, but he never wanted to be a big man in the church. He just wanted to be encouraging and obedient to God. But we get to chapter 5, and there was this couple sitting at the back. Ananias and Sapphira. And in their heart, they thought, you know what? This church is just being born. It's just getting started. It's so new. You see what Barnabas did? You see all that money he gave? And you see how much honor came on when he gave that money? Hey, baby, I got an idea. You know that house we got down in Monterey? Let's sell it. And she's like, and give the money to the, to the Lord? No, 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 no. We're going to give part of it to the Lord. But we'll tell them that this is the whole amount. And guess what will happen? 
You see how much Barnabas got honored when he gave that offering? We're going to get honored too. They did it with the intention to receive honor from the people for their public display of what was what they wanted to be perceived as obedience to God. The first problem is God didn't tell them to do it. They weren't being led of the Spirit. They were being led by personal ambition, which means that they did not realize that the giving was supernatural. They thought it was natural. They thought giving is the means by which you gain standing in the church. Giving is the means by which you are seen. Giving is the means by which you obtain honor in the church. The means by which people perceive you as being obedient to God. In their minds and hearts, they thought they were simply dealing with people. And because of that, they thought, we can come to church and tell this lie because we're only lying to people. They thought they were lying to men. They were actually lying to God. They were seeking honor from men, not realizing that God was able to look straight into their hearts and see their motives and their intentions, and God was not pleased. So they went out, and they sold that piece of property. And they took their cut and put it to the side. Now, we need to see this and understand this. The next day they went to church, because by the way, in the early church, they went to church not once a week, not twice a week. They went to church six times a week. Six days a week, that is, but two times a day. So actually it was 12 times a week. Every morning at 9 a.m. they had the morning service, and every afternoon at 3 p.m. they had the evening service. Oh, and by the way, the only one day they didn't go to church was the Sabbath, (laughs) which is the opposite for us, right? That's the only day we go to church, and it's Sunday. It's not even the Sabbath, but that's okay. We'll get to that. It's not wrong to go to church on Sunday, by the way. Just (laughs) got to be careful what you say, Ying. (laughs) Ying said, my bad. (laughs) You're not even up here talking. They come to church the next morning. They're like, wait till Peter gets to the climax of his sermon. So that everybody's standing on their feet and hooping and hollering and shouting hallelujah. I just assume it was a black church. And Peter gets to the climax of his sermon. And Johnny jumped on the Hammond B3 organ. And Peter went, yeah! And at that very moment... (laughs) Too much? (laughs) Yes, Lord! And at that very moment, Ananias jumped up and threw down a huge brick of cash. And it hit the floor in front of Peter... And the bills just went everywhere. He made it rain. And Peter looked at him, and the discernment of the Holy Spirit kicked in. And he said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now listen to this. Before you sold the property, wasn't it yours? Wasn't it in your control? And after you sold the property, didn't the money still belong to you? Do you hear what he's saying? None of this is obligatory. All these people who are giving, they're not giving because there's a rule that says if you have extra property, sell it and give the money to the apostles. Nobody's doing this out of obligation. It's not, it's, you didn't have to do this. You could have just said, by the way, this is not the whole amount. I'm just giving half the amount. You could have just said, this is 10%. It's just an offering. It's not the whole property. It's your money. Nobody's making you give any of it. But you put on this big show because you want to be seen. You thought this was natural, but it's supernatural. You have not lied to men, but to God. And at that moment, Ananias fell down dead. I mean, he just died. God kills somebody at church. That's, that's kind of scary. And somebody went to church and died. Isn't church the place where you're supposed to get healed? <laughs> Isn't church the place where you're supposed to get set free? But he came to church and lied. 
and then came to church and died. Because he lied, he died. What's the moral to the story? If you lie, <laughs> you die. <laughs> Don't come to church acting like you're somebody you're not. Don't come to church pretending like you're more holy than you actually are. Don't come to church pretending you got it all together. Look, it's because you, you don't need to. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that if you come to church and anything's wrong with you, God's going to kill you. No. And matter of fact, he never killed anybody else at church in the book of, except of three hours later. <laughs> There's one more. Three hours later. Sapphira comes in, not knowing what her husband, what had happened to her husband. And Peter says, Sapphira, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too, apostle. I got a question for you. How much did you sell that property for? She said, my husband gave the money, right? Yeah, yeah, he made it rain this morning. Well, that's how much we sold the property for. He says, wow, the two of you conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit? For real? The men who carried out your husband this morning are about to carry you. Boom. And she died. Dang. Because they thought it was natural. But it was actually supernatural. You know, a lot of people want the church to be a safe place. Can I say to you, the house of God is not a safe place. And the Bible never says the church is a safe place. But you know what the Bible says? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Your safety is not found in this organization called the church. Your safety is found in obedience to God. Amen. Yes. Come on, say amen. I'm going to train y'all. Say amen. amen. <laughs> say that. Say that. <laughs> There is no safety outside of obedience to God. Somebody said, well, then, you know, if it ain't safe at church, I'm not coming to church anymore. You think you're safe at home? You think God's, God can't see you there? You think as long as you don't go to church, you don't have to deal with God? No, you got to deal with him. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have to stand before him, and you are going to have to deal with him. You ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> Ying's like, here we go. That last scene in book seven, at the end of the age, when there's a door leading into the kingdom of Aslan, and Aslan stands at the door, and every creature on earth comes and stands before him and looks into his face. And it says, some of them looked into his face and loved him, and they entered into his kingdom. And others looked into his face and despised him and hated him, and they entered into outer darkness, and they were turned away. And every creature on earth had to stand before the judgment seat of Aslan. And I, I, I wept as I read that because I was like, that is real. Right. Everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's no running from it, so you might as well run to him. Yes. Yes. Ananias and Sapphira put themselves right into the place of the judgment of God because they thought that it was natural, but it was actually supernatural. They thought they were dealing with people, but they were actually dealing with God. And I must say that the lesson about Ananias and Sapphira has nothing to do with tithes and offerings. Yeah. It's not about if you didn't give your tithe this week, God just might kill you. <laughs> However, if you don't give your tithe, God just might not bless you. We do have scriptural precedent for that, but that's another sermon. We're not getting into that. Now, I want you to see how God is able to take a bad thing and turn it into a good thing. God is very purposive. Look at this. Verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Why is that a good thing? The immediate response is that the church learns how to fear the Lord. 
And do you know what the fear of the Lord is? It's simply the knowledge of his reality. If we have no fear of God, it simply means we don't. That's a little bit of atheism. It's like you don't really truly believe with all your heart that he's real. Because, I mean, if you truly, really believe with all your heart that he's real and you're going to have to stand before him one day, there's some trepidation. I mean, if you don't fear him. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a difference between a spirit of fear. And the spirit of fear is simply constantly living in terror. And I see this all the time. There's believers. Oh, no. There's, matter of fact, there's believers who are always afraid. I think I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said that's the unforgivable sin. Maybe I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm lost forever. Maybe I haven't been predestined to eternal salvation. If you're constantly afraid of the judgment of God, um, that's called a spirit of fear. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the fear of the Lord. That's a spirit of fear. And God has not given you a spirit of fear. See, when I was a little boy, I was constantly afraid. I, I, especially at night. I was always afraid. And I was afraid, number one, I was afraid that the rapture was going to come and I was going to get left. <laughs> this is my mom over here, by the way, Bishop Diane Robinson. I remember one time, see, my mom, I, I think I was probably 12 years old. My little brother was 10 and my other brother was 8. And my mom and dad went out to dinner with some friends at the Oakland Ice Creamery. And uh, mom called home on a payphone. Back in the day, there were these phones where you put coins in. <laughs> right? So she calls home on a payphone. I answer the phone. I, hello? She goes, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're fine. Did you guys eat dinner? Yeah, yeah. We, we ate what you left us. Okay, great. How's, and she goes, how's Josh doing? Click. And I was sure the rapture had just taken place. <laughs> And the Lord Jesus had just taken my mother away and left me. And I grabbed my brothers and I was crying. I was like, we got to seek the Lord right now. We got to seek him. Get on your knees right now. And I made my brothers get on their knees in the living room. And I got on my knees behind them and put my hand on their shoulders. I'm like, Jesus, take us too. Oh, God. I was so scared. I was so sure Jesus just came. Mom and dad just went with the Lord and he left us by ourselves. I remember one of, one of, one of the guys at our church, he was telling me that, that he used to deal with that fear as well. And one day uh, he called over to the church. He, was, he thought the rapture might have taken place. So he called, to, called the church and this guy answered the phone and he knew this guy was kind of shady. So he's like, Hello? Who is this? And the guy said, it's Joseph. He goes, put somebody else on the phone. <laughs> he said, he said I, need, I need to talk to a godly person to know that I haven't been left behind, that Jesus hasn't left me. There's such thing as a spirit of fear. And that's not what God has given us. He does not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. But, but also, he does not take away the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the knowledge of the severity of his holiness. It is the knowledge and the understanding that even though the blood of Jesus Christ wipes away all my sin, one day I'm going to have to stand before him and give an account for every idle word that I have ever spoken. I have to give an account for every action that the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away my sin does not do away with the fact that I've got to deal with God. God is a gangster. For real. He's the kind of gangster that makes gangsters tremble. It says great fear came on all the church. Look at this. How is that a good thing? I'll show you why that's a good thing. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Verse 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. There was so much fear that it turned into faith. You see, the fear of the Lord immediately gives birth to faith. This is how you know it's the fear of the Lord. Because if it gives birth to an expectation that God is getting ready to do something powerful, that fear came from the Lord. But if it gives birth to the expectation of torment and judgment, that's a spirit of fear. But such fear came on the people that they, they felt like, man, God is here and he's about to do something crazy. And that expectation opened the windows of heaven and all of a sudden, signs and wonders, miracles and mighty deeds were being done by the hands of the apostles so that they brought the, I'm sorry, and, and uh, 
um, look at verse 14. And the believers were in, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And they were all healed, it says. What a crazy revival. Can you imagine this? You know, every time... You know, Man, I was, I was at Panera last week doing a premarital session with a, a young couple. They don't go to our church. They don't really know the Lord. And I love doing weddings for couples outside of the church because I always find a moment to share the gospel. And I've, I've, I've led so many couples to the Lord that way, just... Doing, you know, because, you know, only, only 4% of the Bay Area actually goes to church. So 96% of the Bay Area, when they're going to get married, they just Google church. And then they contact the closest church to them. And so over the years, I've done, I've done, almost 100, I've done more than 100 weddings probably. And many of them have been just people, just random couples who have just contacted me and said, would you do our wedding? And so, you know, I can't do all of them. I can't always do all of them, but the ones that I'm able to do, and there was this one couple, it was so powerful. I did their premarital. I always do six premarital sessions. And on the fourth session, I felt the Holy Spirit prompting my heart, and I shared the gospel with them, and they both received Jesus. And they received Jesus with tears. I mean, it was like so real. It was so good and it was so powerful. But then I said to them, okay, you guys are believers now, right? And they were like, yes. I said, you want to serve Jesus with all your heart, right? And they were like, yes. I said, okay, are you sure? They said, yes. I said, okay, you have to stop having sex. They were like, for how long? I said, till your wedding day. And they were like, okay. And I was like, for real? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, y'all really got saved. You know, like, no, that, was, that was real. You know, like, Jesus did something there. You know, Jesus was real, right? That was real. Look at that. Uh, I was so excited, right? And so I started discipling them and pouring into their lives. Well, about a month later, they called me on a Saturday morning. And they were both crying. They were like, Pastor, we messed up. Oh, they were crying and they were so brokenhearted. They were so brokenhearted. And they were like, what does that mean? Does it mean we can't get married? Does it mean we got to start all over again? Do we need to postpone the wedding? They were like ready to handle any, whatever the consequences were, they were ready to deal with it. And I was like, no. And I told them about Jesus making intercession for our sins. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Holy One, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I just preached to them the grace of God and they wept and received the forgiveness of Jesus. And then they were like, we're not going to fall again. And it was another three months until they got married. And guess what? I flew out to Phoenix to do their wedding. It was so cool. You could feel the presence of God so strong at their wedding. All of these unbelieving friends of theirs there. And we walk into the hall for the reception. And they introduce them. Ladies and gentlemen, for the very first time, I introduce you. And they called out the bride and groom. And they came in. And the music started going. And they were dancing. And all of a sudden, the wife stopped and screamed at the top of her lungs so everybody in the hall could hear it. We're going to have sex tonight for the first time in six months. Except one time. (laughs) And everything stopped. And her friends looked at them. And one of her friends goes... Why? And she goes, because we received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. <laughs> I was so gangster. I was like, <laughs> I just wanted to video that and just freeze and go, la da 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 da. <laughs> and just have glasses and a, and a blunt. <laughs> you know, that was like a thug life moment. <laughs> that was crazy. But it was because she really got saved. But I was telling another story. So I was, doing, I, was, I was meeting with this couple last Wednesday. I'm sitting in Panera, and I'm talking to this couple. And, I'm, and I thought, you know, this is the day. I just felt it like, this is the day. I'm going to share the gospel with this couple. And I shared the gospel with them in Panera. And there's other people sitting around, and I know they can hear me. Yeah. And I'm like, what an awesome opportunity, like, to bear witness to the resurrection and glory of Jesus. But I'm, like, expecting heaven to start to open Because typically, you know, in those moments when I can share the gospel, like the presence of God comes. And I can see they're visibly moved by the presence of God. And then the tears start to flow. 
And it's like, I feel, sometimes I feel like for, for like a five foot radius around me, everybody's feeling the presence of God. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, you feel that. You know what I mean? Oh, that's right. Feel it. That's right. Am I making you uncomfortable? Good. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, like that's what I'm thinking inside. Like, get him, Holy Spirit. Get him. But the heavens never opened. And this couple is like, they were, they were, they were quasi-receptive. They were like, that's cool. Yeah, actually, you know, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But I was like, and I walked out of there and I thought to myself, Lord, everybody in Panera was supposed to get saved tonight. Like if the windows of heaven opened, like I should have been able to look to the table over there and they're crying as they're and then over there and they're crying. And I can, I'm just imagining myself going table to table. That's right. It's Jesus. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit is on you right now. Just repeat this prayer after me. And next thing you know, everybody in Panera is gathered and I'm preaching the gospel to everybody. Like that's my dream. That's my dream. Like I'm talking about McDonald's revivals. I'm talking about Starbucks revivals. Like, you know, like Pete's coffee, like wherever you go, the presence of God comes and people get saved by the power of God. But when that doesn't break out, it's kind of like, it's just so wrong that the presence of God's confined to the church. Just so wrong that you got to go to a a square box every Sunday to feel the presence of God. No, it's supposed to be every day, wherever you are. Do you know what happened here? After God killed two people in church on a Sunday morning. And what comes out of it is such a sense of seriousness in the whole body that the presence of God broke out of the four walls of the church and into the streets and into the communities. And Peter, before you knew it, Peter was outside walking in the streets praying. And it said there was so much honor on Peter and there was so much faith in the atmosphere that they just wanted his shadow to fall on them as he walked by. And guess what happened? Peter walked down the street and his shadow was falling on people and they were jumping up out of wheelchairs and out of cots and they were getting healed everywhere and thousands of people were added to the church. That's called an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's when God breaks through and does something crazy. You know what I'm talking about. Like, come on, man. It's like, that's, that's the heart. It's like when I read that, I'm like, yes, God. Not just the first century, the last century, the 21st century. Like renew it in our day and in our time. I want to see miracles at Starbucks. I want to, I want to see gas station miracles and Safeway miracles. And I want to see salvation break out at the park and at 24 hour fitness. I want to see the presence of God break out of this room and do something like wherever you go, wherever you go. Some of you are mildly excited about that, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> you have to forgive me. I'm a little fanatic. Verse 17. All right, this is part three. So part one is communism. Part two, two people get killed at church. Part three, revival in the streets. Okay, this is part four, actually. Part four, then the high priest rose up and everybody with him. They were like, oh, heck no. Didn't we just command them? If you go back to chapter 4 and chapter 3, you see what happens. That the, the high priest and all the leaders, they actually warned them, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter looked at him and said, do what you got to do. We got to do what we got to do. But you tell me what's right, to obey you or obey God. Peace. And they left. And now they're back out there preaching in the name of Jesus. So the high priest rose up. He calls the council together. He goes, arrest those men. Throw them in jail. So they come and they arrest. So Peter is out having this street revival with all the apostles. And they're having a street revival. People are getting healed and set free. And demons are coming out. And people are getting saved. And the revival is at its height. And all of a sudden, the police show up and arrest them. And take them and put them in jail. And they were like, you're going to spend the night here in the jail. We're going to deal with you tomorrow. See you later. They locked them up in jail. They locked the doors. They set guards in front, and they all went home. And in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes and opens the prison doors. They thought it was natural. It's supernatural. Sometimes we find ourselves in predicaments, and we just feel like we're bound to the natural course of things. If you tie me to a wall, I can't simply get untied from the wall. But all of a sudden, the supernatural breaks into the natural. An angel of the Lord shows up and opens the prison doors and goes, Come on, guys, come on. 
And they're like, for real? Like, yeah, for real. How is this happening? It's supernatural. That's how it's happening. It's not natural. It's supernatural. You thought you lived in a natural world. You live in a supernatural world. You feel like you... See, this is the problem. The supernatural is the world of heaven. The natural is the world of earth. And the supernatural freaks most of us out. But the Bible says we're strangers and aliens in the earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. Which means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the supernatural should be familiar. And the natural should be strange to you. Like you should look around at stuff that happens in the earth and go, this is so strange. But then angels show up and you go, yeah, that's, see, now I feel more comfortable. <laughs> Sickness happens and you're like, What's, this is wrong. Something doesn't feel right about this. And then a great miracle happens and cancer disappears. And you're like, okay, everything's like, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. The now things are right. But it's the opposite for us. A miracle happens. We're like, oh my God, I don't believe it. And sickness happens. We're like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> As soon as you feel that pain in your head, you're like, I, tumor. I know it's a tumor. <laughs> yep. Pain in your chest, up, oh, lung cancer. You start preparing your family. I know I'm going to die. <laughs> because you just feel so familiar in the natural world. But then God heals you and you're like, test it again. That can't be right. Give me another test. Because we're actually strangers and aliens in heaven and citizens of the world. And what we need to learn as believers is how to be strangers and aliens in the earth, but citizens in heaven. We must become more familiar with the supernatural than with the natural. Jesus must become more real to you than this world is real to you. And when Jesus becomes more real to you than the world, that's where fear breaks off. All of a sudden, we, have, we experience the fear of God and no more of the fear of man. No more of the fear of rejection. Most of us would be scared to share the gospel at Starbucks because if people around me hear me, they're going to reject me and they're going to think there's one of those crazy fanatic Christians. Listen, you can think whatever you want to think about me. I walk in the fear of God, not the fear of man. So the angel, so, so watch this. So they know they're going to be in trouble tomorrow. So the angel opens up the doors, says, come on out. And they come out and they were like, let's go hide before they arrest us again. Right? Like, that's what I'd be thinking. Yeah. Be like, thanks a lot, angel. We'll see you later. We're going to, we're going underground for a while, church. <laughs> you know, matter of fact, we're going to take a vacation from this revival. This revival is too dangerous. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the angel says, let's go to the temple. And he takes them to the temple and they're like, what do you want us to do now? And he goes, go stand in the temple courts and preach. See you later. And the angel disappears. <laughs> Wait, you want us to go back and do the thing that we got arrested for last night? You don't even want us to take a break? No time off? No. Go into the temple courts right now and preach. And so the apostles go into the temple courts and they start preaching out loud. They just start shouting. When I was a Bible college student, me and my, me and my buddies, we used to go out to like community colleges, like Diablo Valley Community College and stuff. And we would go stand in the square on campus and just start preaching the gospel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, and people were just yelling at us and, and the, the, the Wiccans would come out against us and like yeah, face off with us. And they were like, you want to see power? We're like, bring it on. I got the power of Jesus. You know what I mean? We're just like so wild and gangster and crazy like we didn't care we would just face off with people you know it was totally fruitless by the way like nobody got saved that way <laughs> but for us it was just an exercise in boldness you know it's like I just got to do something for Jesus <laughs> you know what I mean and so the apostles like they go in the temple they just start preaching Jesus saved you know raised from the dead he's our savior and our king so then the next morning the ruling council they get together and they say to the they say go get those men out of jail so then the guards go and they open up the jail and they're not there. And they close the jail and they go back and they said, indeed, we found the jail locked up and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened it up, nobody was there. And they were like, what? That's crazy. And then somebody walked in and said, you know those men you arrested last night? They were like, yeah. Well, they're standing in the temple courts and they're preaching. And they're like, this is crazy. Go get them. So they go and arrest them again. Can you imagine? You're the apostles. Like, oh, great. Here come the police. You know, here come the popo. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so they get arrested again, and they're brought before the council, and they say, did we not tell you to preach in this name? And they were like, you murdered Jesus. And they're yelling at the council, and the council's yelling back at them, and it's like getting really tense. It's like, oh, snap. It's about to go on. About to, something's about to happen in here. Like, it's not going to be good. I mean, the apostles all of a sudden had some boldness. They were not afraid. Yeah. And they were like, 
Didn't we command you not to preach in this name? And now you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine and you want to bring this man's blood on us. And they're like, bring his blood on you. You killed him. Of course his blood is on you. You're the murderers. But guess what? God raised him from the dead. West side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I mean, they were just like, so they were just like, they were, they had no fear. I mean, when an angel lets you out of prison in the middle of the night, you're like, you can't touch me. Yeah, yeah. Can't touch this. Anyway, you know, they, they, just, they had no fear. And all of a sudden, this guy named Gamaliel stands up. He's like, everybody quiet, everybody quiet. Put those men outside for a few minutes. I want to talk to the council. So they put the apostles outside. Gamaliel's an important guy. Gamaliel was on the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. He was actually a Pharisee. And he had a very important student, a very important disciple named Saul of Tarsus, who was also called Paul. So we're going to find this guy Gamaliel, right? Gamaliel, he speaks with some wisdom. And he says to the council, he says, be careful how you treat these men. And he gives them a little history. Do you remember that guy Theotis? They're like, yeah. You know, he raised himself up and said he was somebody. Well, he was killed and his followers were scattered. And then there was this other dude. He raised himself up, said he was somebody, and he was killed and his followers were scattered. He said, you know what? If what these guys are doing is not of God, it's going to come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. You'll even find yourselves to be fighting against God. And they were like, yeah, that's true, Gamaliel. That makes sense. Bring those men in here. So they bring them in, they, and it says, I want to read the verse to you so you see. This is because sometimes the Bible says stuff in passing that's just not a big deal to them, but it's actually a big deal to us. Look, look at this, look at this. Uh, verse 40, and they agreed with him, that is Gamaliel. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, Hold on, stop this. <laughs> they just, it just, you see how Luke just puts it, when they called the apostles and beaten them, <laughs> as if that was just par for the course, right? And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They called the apostles in, and as soon as they called them in, they're like, go get the billy clubs, get the sticks. And the apostles are like, oh, shoot, here it comes. And they, they, they beat him. They just beat him. Now, if I'm one of the apostles, I'm like, hold on a second. Didn't the angel tell us to go back and preach? The angel told us to go back in there and preach, knowing that we were going to get beat? <laughs> like, couldn't he foresee they were going to beat us today? Because God's obligation is to make sure nothing bad happens to me. What happened there, God? I mean, that's what I would have been thinking. They beat them. They commanded them, don't speak in this name anymore, and they let them go. And they left with bad attitudes and bitterness of soul. And they were so mad at God that they all dropped out of the ministry and left the church. And that was the end of the early church. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. Verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They left rejoicing. They left with big smiles on their face and knots on their heads. Going, I can't believe that God counted us worthy to get beat for the name of Jesus. I can't believe that he would entrust us. I remember going to China for the first time. I met with, I was invited to speak for a group of 30 people. Not realizing at the time that those 30 people 
We're the top 30 leaders of a network of 9 million believers across the country. And the top five leaders of that network invited me to have lunch with them every day during the three days that I got to speak to them. I got to talk to them from nine o'clock in the morning until about nine o'clock at night for three consecutive days. And when I found out who they were, I thought, why am I talking to them? I need them to talk to me. And so I was having lunch with them on the second day and I asked through my translator, have you guys experienced persecution? And when I said it to my translator, this, this strange smile came on his face. And he translated what I said. And all five of them fell out laughing. I mean, like, hilarious laughter. Like, what a silly question you Americans would ask. <laughs> right? And then they start telling stories. And the first guy, he starts telling me his stories like, ni hao, or whatever he says, right? Sorry, sorry, that's, that was inappropriate. But, but, you know, I mean, you know. And the translator starts to translate. And he said, I was in a particular city. And I was in a home. And I was sharing the gospel with this family. And late at night, the police broke into the home, drugged me out into the street, and beat me with batons. And then said over the loudspeaker, this is what we do to anybody who preaches this message to people in this city. And then they drugged me off to prison. And everybody went, ha! They all fell out laughing again. And he fell out laughing. It was like the funniest thing they had ever heard before. Wow. And I'm like, tears are coming down my face. I'm the only one crying. Everybody else is laughing. Another one says, I spent seven years in prison, and it was the best seven years of my life. He said, because they put me in a, in a room with 30 other prisoners. And I shared the gospel with all 30 of them and led them all to the Lord. And over a period of six months, I discipled all of them and strengthened them in their faith. And then they took all 30 of them out and put in a new 30. And I led them all to the Lord and discipled them all for six months. Every six months, they took them out and gave me a new 30 people. He said it was so wonderful because I didn't have to go look for people to share the gospel with. They brought people right to me. And he said by the end of that seven years, not only had I led hundreds of people to Christ, but all of the prison guards and even the warden of the prison had received Jesus because I was... Was there and everybody went ah and they fell out laughing <laughs> and another guy told a story about how he was beaten by one of the prison guards in prison because the guard told him beat that guy he said I can't beat him and the guy said why not he said because I'm a Christian and the guard said you're a Christian I said yes I'm a Christian and so the guard beat me with the baton and they ah they fell out of their chairs laughing and it dawned on me they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Do you realize that one of the greatest compliments God could ever give you is the experience of being rejected for your faith in Christ? That if God ever gives you that opportunity, you should take it. They left rejoicing and Look at this. They didn't take a sabbatical. They didn't go on vacation. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't stop. Nothing's going to stop us. Why? Because they looked at the persecution against us and said, that's just natural. But we don't live in a natural world. We live in a supernatural world. And so we're not going to operate out of the fear of man. Yeah. We're going to operate out of the fear of the Lord. And we're not going to be obedient to men. We're going to be obedient to God. They did not cease. All through this process, things that seem natural are actually supernatural. All through this process, there's, I mean, supernatural giving and, and sharing happening. There's supernatural miracles transpiring, supernatural judgment and death happening in the church. There's supernatural revival breaking out in the streets. There's angelic visitations and prison doors opening. All through this whole process, God is doing supernatural things. But we live in a day and age in which we expect the church to be natural. 
When you ask people or when people ask you, what do you like about your church? We name a bunch of natural stuff. I like the graphics and I like the music and I like the fellowship and the friendship. I like the coffee bar, the kind of coffee they share. I love the people in my community group. And you say everything about people, but nobody says it's the presence of God in that place. God does supernatural stuff. Somebody got healed last Sunday. Blind eyes were open. And so often we think it's natural, but it's supernatural. And all through scripture, there's people who thought they were living in a natural world, but all of a sudden revelation transpires and they can see that it's supernatural. All through scripture, you remember that guy Jacob? He's out in the desert running for his life from his brother. He puts his head on a rock and goes to sleep. He thinks it's natural. I'm just running for my life and I'm sleeping in the desert. But in the night, he has a dream and he sees a ladder stretched from heaven to earth. Angels coming up and down the ladder. God standing on the top of the ladder. God saying, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham and Isaac. And I will not leave you until I fulfilled my great purpose for you. And Jacob wakes up and says, surely God was in this place, but I was not aware of it. I thought it was natural, but it's supernatural. I thought I was in a desert, but God is in this place. And I didn't realize that I was not aware of it. He went to sleep saying, this place sucks. But he woke up in the morning saying, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I'm telling you that some of you think you're living out in a desert place. And you're going to sleep with a rock as your pillow. Because you think you're in the natural. But God is getting ready to open your eyes to see that you're not in the natural. You're in the supernatural. And that God is with you. And that God is in this place. And all God needs is just a little bit of faith. That's all he's looking for. It's just a little bit of faith. And all faith is, is our agreement with God. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. If you can count the stars, that's how many children you're going to have. And it says, Abraham, believe God. What does that mean? Abraham just said, okay. (laughs) All he said was, God, cool. (laughs) That's what you're going to do? All right, cool, for sure. You know, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Literally, Abraham simply said, God, I agree with you. And God said, Abraham, you're righteous. All God is looking for is agreement. God says it's supernatural. Lord, it looks natural to me, but you said it's supernatural. I agree with you. I agree with your presence. I agree with your power. I agree with your love. God, I agree. And I tell you, the windows of heaven are about to open over your life. God's going to show you what it means that he's with you and that he loves you and that he cares for your life. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads and let's pray. Pray. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're in this place. And I pray for the opening of our eyes and the opening of our hearts. Lord, like the early church, I pray that we would be of one heart and one mind and that that one heart would be a passionate longing and desire to know you to serve you to trust you and to see your glory give us that one heart and make that one heart the foundation of our unity That we would never unify around earthly things. But that we would unify around heavenly things. Awaken our hearts today that we might see it's supernatural. It's supernatural. Fear comes from thinking it's just natural. Anxiety comes from thinking it's just natural. But faith comes from knowing it's supernatural. When faith rises up in your heart, you begin to believe that no weapon forged against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up in judgment against you, you shall refute. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. When faith comes alive in your heart, you begin to believe that God is in the midst of us. That he was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement of your peace was upon him and that by his wounds you are healed. When faith comes alive in your heart, you begin to recognize that you are never bound to the natural. I don't care what the doctor says, you're not bound to the natural. God has the last say. God has the last word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes and bring to us the revelation of Jesus. Lord, we long to see supernatural things break forth among us. 
We long to see more miracles and signs and wonders. We long for the church to be a supernatural place, that this would be the gate of heaven, that this would be none other than the house of God. We long for your presence and your power and your glory to break out of these four walls and into the street. We long to see your presence come at Starbucks and at school and at work, at Facebook and at Google and at Cisco and, yeah. and at, at wherever we work, at Dolby. Yes. We long to see your glory yes. and to know you, Jesus. Yes. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lift us up. Lift us up out of the natural world. And lift us into the supernatural. Out of the place where we're bound by earthly fears. And into the place where we fear God and God alone. That place in which we fear God too much to fear any man. I speak over each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I say to those of you who are fearful hearted. Do not be afraid. For behold, the Lord your God with a strong and mighty hand, he will come and save you. I say to those of you who are brokenhearted, he is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves such as trust in him. And I encourage your faith today. In the name of Jesus. Jesus.